Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part two of our protocol optimization in CT. We left off last time talking about when do we use positive oral contrast and when do we use neutral oral contrast. And we mentioned that we use neutral oral contrast, particularly when we want to look at the mucosal enhancement, when we want to look at vascular mapping. So it becomes important, for example, in organ imaging like pancreas or liver or kidneys but also looking at the patient's bowel. So when we look for ischemic bowel, we look for perfusion changes, increased or decreased enhancement, and with water as a contrast agent, it works very nicely. And also, of course, applications like look for GI bleeding. When you're looking for GI bleeding, as in this case, you're looking for the presence of high density that is created by the act of bleeding. If you have positive contrast on board, you can't see it. So for example, in this case, you very nicely see the site of bleeding in the patient's descending colon. We also speak about the fact when we do protocols that we always do dual phase with bleeds, arterial and venous, and in this case, the image on your right is the venous phase. You can see the bleed is much more obvious and the bleed is much more extensive. Patients who increase their bleeding from arterial to venous substantially are more likely to have a positive angio when done a couple hours later. Also, I've seen a number of cases where the bleeds are missed on the arterial phase because they're so subtle, but they're so obvious on the venous phase. So dual phase imaging indeed becomes very important in that regard as well, but also the lack of positive contrast is important. If the patient had had positive contrast for a different reason, your limitations are very clear when you're looking for a GI bleed. And you can see the same patient in the coronal view, very nicely showing you the subtle bleed, and the much more obvious bleed, and those two images are less than 20 seconds apart. So again, dual phase imaging, when you talk about protocols, is what we do for suspected GI bleeding. Now, a lot of work was also done with volumen. Volumen, probably a decade ago, was more popular. It's basically fairly expensive. The goal of volumen, uh, as opposed to water, with water, if it's normal bowel, the bowel absorbs the water and so it's hard to distend distal bowel. With volumen, it essentially creates diarrhea, it's methylcellulose, uh, and then what it does is it brings fluid into the bowel and distends it. So in theory, that sounds very good. The problem is some people are very sensitive to that, to the agent, and so they get terrible and what I would best describe as explosive diarrhea. So it can be somewhat difficult for some patients. Also with volumen to kind of get around it, they've decreased the concentration, and I don't think it looks as well as it did before. I remember a few years ago, volumen, which is made in Canada, is not allowed to be prescribed in Canada. And we occasionally use it for some of our GI docs who request it, but typically I think water works just as well. Here's a good example, and again, when you have volumen, you want to be careful of overheating and calling something diarrhea because volume volumen really does create a diarrhea because it brings fluid into the bowel. That's the thing about methylcellulose. Some people, I know Perry Pickard at Wisconsin, has put methylcellulose in their routine contrast to increase the transit time. And in fact, of course, it does. Good example with um, volumen and duodenal polyps, nicely shown in this example in a patient with polyposis syndrome. So it can be valuable. I think volumen probably is most valuable if you're looking for malabsorption syndrome, when you're looking for changes in the fold pattern, it can, particularly proximally, it can indeed be very valuable. 
Now, in terms of contrast, I'll also put a plug in that we do have an app on the Apple Store that talks about contrast protocols and answers the top three or 400 questions you might have about oral and IV contrast and any contrast agent. It's for free and it may be valuable for you to look at. I have been trying to upgrade it for a while. We have a new version out, though a lot of the content has been a bit stable for a while. Now let's look at IV contrast and let's look at some of the key parameters and some of the controversy. IV contrast has always been somewhat controversial. How much do you give? How fast do you inject? What kind of contrast do you use? Do you need contrast? What contrast is better? Is concentration important? How important? Should you get the highest concentration? In Europe, they have 400, not in the US. But is that good or is that bad? Is simply denser better or less dense better? Well, there are a lot of answers to these questions. Um, and there's a lot of controversy. What I'll also do in this short section on contrast is also look at some of the risks of contrast, look at some of the things not so much from the contrast perspective, but the process of injecting, of starting IVs, and worrying about extravasation. So when you ask about extravasation rates, the main reason people are afraid to give fast injection rates of four or five cc's, they're always afraid of contrast extravasation. And there are factors that affect the injection rates and the uh, frequency of extravasation. And they include injection rate, volumes, contrast type, the needle type, and whether it's fenestrated or not. Now the challenge, high flow rates in and of themselves do not cause extravasation, is when you use poor IV catheters like a 22 gauge, or you put the catheter in the hand, that's when you have a higher extravasation rate. Now in the hand, it's important to recognize People often like the hand veins because particularly in older people, they look really big and juicy. But they are big and juicy, but they're not very strong. It's very easy, particularly with fast injection rates, to extravasate, and that's not where you want to put the needle. Also, you don't want to use 22 gauge needles. In this article by Winback, the extravasation rate was highest with 22 gauge needles, independently of anatomic location. For 20 gauge, extravasations were higher in the dorsum of the hand than the antecubital fossa, and extravasation rates were higher in older patients than younger patients. Three important things to keep in mind. So it's very important when you look at things to think about how you do it. So one of the things we looked at, we wrote this article, Pam Johnson, a number of years ago, was the question, we wanted 18 gauge needles for CTA. How often were we getting them? Well, the answer was not as often as we wanted to. Nurses often knew, or the IV starters knew, what vein, what a vein could take, and so they often wouldn't even try the 18, they try the 20. Well, 20 usually works okay, but it's not as good as an 18. So we wanted to know how often and what the impact was. So it's very important to recognize that the 18s were used in only one third of patients, and smaller needles were used, and this was not what we needed to do. Now, one of the reasons we did this study, at that point, uh, Beckin Dickinson was coming along with a new needle, a fenestrated catheter, which instead of having a hole at the bottom, a typical needle, it now had the hole at the bottom, but multiple side holes. And with the multiple side holes and the hole at the bottom, you didn't have the pressure. Think about a rocket, like from NASA, they've had those rockets. They don't have one nozzle. They used to have one nozzle, but those those rockets often exploded. Now they have multiple nozzles because you can spread the force along and get a higher pressure. 
So the same thing here, it's a Nexiva catheter, and you can see it's the bottom catheter, and it has multiple side holes. And you're comparing a standard 18 to a Nexiva. You'd rather get that 20 rather than the 18. And then you found out that a 20-gauge fenestrated catheter performs similar to an 18-gauge with respect to contrast infusion rates, aortic enhancement levels, and can be placed in most subjects whose veins are deemed insufficient for, for an 18-gauge. But it even gets better than that. If you look at the 20-gauge Nexiva, you can see it can take 10 cc's a second. We never give 10 cc's. So there's no reason to ever use an 18 again. And in fact, sometimes people ask me, why don't I use a 22 gauge? Because that gives 6.5 and we never go typically more than six. And that's often a good question. What's nice about the Nexiva and like a lot of the new catheters, it says what it is. It has the pressure rating on there. One thing you need to use 325 PSI for these catheters and not 300, which is a typical number for other catheters. But you can see it says the flow rate very clear cut. Now these catheters are a bit different in terms of placing them. There are phantoms you can use to learn how to do it. So it's something that's very worthwhile to do. Again, the co couple comments I made, 325 PSI, not 300. And again, one of the nice things with the color coding and with the information on the catheter, there's no miscommunication or lack of communication between the IV starting person and the tech. They're not injecting the wrong catheter. They're not making mistakes that typically were made before. And we know that you need fast injection rates. Here's just a good example of a metastatic neuroendocrine tumor. The neuroendocrine tumor begins in the head of the pancreas. You can see the vascular lesions present. You see the neovascularity, but you need these infection in fast infusion rates if you wanna look at the vascular map. Now, in terms of contrast type, non-ionic versus isoosmolar non-ionic. If everything was equal, you would use Visipake 320 all the time. The problem is the expense, and so there's always a pushback against using it. Omnipake and Visipake are both safe. Now, if you look at the risk to our patients, I always am concerned about several things. One I mentioned was, of course, no extravasation. That can be very problematic. Remember, one of the things in the old days with extravasation, and you need to be careful, particularly these days, in the old days with ionic contrast, you extravasated one cc, the patients would scream. Now you extravasate 100 cc's, the patients don't say a word. So you need to be careful monitoring the injection. We stay in the room when the contrast is first going in, and then the techs leave before the radiation starts. Well, remember, IVs don't blow in the last 10 cc's they blow in the first 10 cc's. So if you're watching 15, c 15 seconds worth times five, 75 is in. If 75 is in, you're in great shape. Now, the other thing is what patients should not get contrast. GFR replaced creatinine, and we have moved from creatinine to GFR. It used to be that things were divided in three groups. Over 60, you were in great shape. 30 to 59, it was borderline if you should get contrast. And under 30, you never got contrast. And here's a typical chart from more than a decade ago. Well, we have often felt that the whole risk of contrast has been overblown. And in fact, at NPR last year, this was actually addressed and addressed very well. There's also been use of iodinated contrast media in kidney, in kidney disease patients. 
American College of Radiology, National Kidney Foundation, making the point that contrast is indeed safe. In this article, the risk of acute renal injury developing in patients with reduced renal function following exposure to intravenous iodinated contrast has been overstated. This is due primarily to historic lack of control groups sufficient to separate, separate contrast-induced acute renal injury caused by contrast from contrast-associated acute kidney injury coincident to contrast media administration. And in this article, it goes on, patients with a GFR of less than 30 can be given IV contrast material. Again, you need to think about it. Patients in dialysis, not going to be an issue. And patients over 30, there's no problem. The presence of a solitary kidney should not, make, should not independently influence uh, the risk of acute kidney injury. Again, a single kidney, good function, you can give IV contrast. Now, this whole idea about contrast, Newhouse wrote a number of articles way back when talking about how the risk was overestimated. Uh, in his articles, he made the point that if you had two patients in the same room, one got contrast, one didn't. The patient who didn't get contrast, their creatinine often went up more than the patient with contrast. The point being that we often thought about creatinine as a level that was flat. Well, it's not. It goes up and goes down. When you were measuring creatinine the third day post-contrast, it may have been up even if you didn't get contrast. And so you called contrast nephropathy if it went up 25% or more. But 25% motion is not that unusual. We did a study at Hopkins, the ER folks did, and they found that basically over a five-year period, there were no contrast-induced injuries. Now, we pushed to give contrast to patients who needed it. They often were difficult, but we, were, we worked together well. But the point is, if no one has contrast nephropathy, then you probably are not giving enough patients contrast. In this article, again, the issue is this was true for all subgroup analysis, regardless of baseline function and whether comparisons were made directly or after propensity matching. Contrast administration was not associated with increased incidence of chronic kidney disease, dialysis, or renal transplant at six months. Very, very important. Now, Everyone has a different way of doing things. So let me just show you what our most recent thing is. Now, I always hate these charts because it looks like overly complicated, but it really isn't. So dialysis patients, we don't need labs because if they get in dialysis, you're not gonna hurt their GFR. And so unless someone has developed acute dialysis from some problem recently, chronic dialysis patients, you don't need to worry. Their GFR is typically under 30. And if they need IV contrast, give it to them. Now, if patients have any of the following risk factors and there is no GFR value on record within 90 days, we do a serum creatinine and you can see some of the choices. So the question comes, when do you need to get uh, a serum creatinine? When do you need a GFR value? So we w don't want everyone to get it. That's very expensive, time consuming. But if you've had renal transplant and nephrectomy, any stage kidney disease chronic in the EHR or documentation of a GFR within 90 days under 30, then will require a serum creatinine GFR. If the patient has any of the following risk factors, but there's no GFR in record within 90 days, you can do a point of care. Just the fact patients are older, over 60, diabetes, or with a single kidney, partial nephrectomy or renal ablation procedure. 
Again, point of care is very easy to do. It takes a few seconds and it costs a few dollars. Lab takes longer. Again, we point of care we'd like to use. Our folks in pathology feel that for certain situations mentioned on the prior scan, point of care may be less accurate. So you need to do classic. And here's our typical rules. Uh, for pediatric patients, we use Visipake on all patients. Uh, for adult patients, you can see over 60, typically Omni, 40 to 60, Omni, unless Visi has a, a good reason. Under 40, but over 30, we use Visipake, and under 30, we're typically using Visipake. Now, we do put contrast in a warmer. If I asked you to use warmers, 10 years ago, everyone said yes. Now most people say no because they don't have a warmer. The warmers were given for free by the drug companies. The challenge with a warmer is you need to track the temperature every day for Jayco. That's a pain in the neck. You need to label the contrast that you put in the warmer so it's not more than 30 days old. But you know, at the end of the day, it's worth it. We've always used warmers because the high injection rates give increased incidence of extravasation if you don't use a warmer, it's by a factor of three. Intravenous injected arterial studies in which timing and peak enhancement are critical, warming is also recommended. Now, when you don't have warming, this article from Duke made the point that you triple the extravasation rate. So if you can avoid extravasation by simply keeping contrast in the warmer, do it. Now, one of the things also to remember, patients with extrinsic warming reduced allergic-like reactions to contrast. The results of the present study were clinically significant and were in accordance with the latest contrast guidelines. Again, it's very important to do it. Again, what's the downside? The downside, it takes a little bit more monitoring. Now, I'm not saying go on eBay because you don't want to buy this warmer here, which has frayed power cords. I think a great thing is to have a warmer that actually would then give you, just like to your Apple Watch or your Apple phone, the temperature every day and would warn you if there was a problem. That's what you really need. Having to go and look at it every day and write it down in the book is a little bit painful. What do you do Saturday and Sundays? And Jayco wants to see the temperature every single day. Now, let's do one last thing and then we'll take a break. What about prepping if you've had a contrast reaction? We like 24 hours, 24, 12, 2, 40 milligrams of prednisone at each time point. Um, some people have said 13 is not inferior. Some people have often spoken about 5 as well. ACR goes with the 13 prep. Again, I feel more comfortable with outpatients. It's no big deal to do a 24-hour prep. The people in allergy at Hopkins always told me you need prednisone for 24 hours to make it work. And we've had really good results with a low rate of breakthrough at 24 hours. Faster premedication should reduce the indirect harms of premedication in hospitalized patients at high risk for reactions to contrast media. This was the five-hour protocol, but again, with five hours, you have increased breakthrough. So again, it's kind of tricky. Now, what else do we need to look at? Well, one thing to look at is delayed reactions. Now, I remember someone, a patient calling and saying three days ago, I had a CT scan, I have a rash. We would always say, oh, that rash is not from CT. Now we know better. You can have a delayed reaction up to a week post-contrast, an event occurring more than one hour to one week after contrast injection, although the majority are three hours to two days. Often, these delayed reactions 
are uh, really bad rashes. They're more common with Visipake than Omnipake. Um, what you need to tell the patient is go to the ER or go to your doctor. Those patients will often need steroids. The rash will persist with significant itching unless the patients are treated and occasionally will even require hospitalization. Many of the patients require symptomatic treatment from antihistamines or corticosteroids. So again, it's a very important thing to be aware of. Once a patient says they've had a prior reaction, the recurrence rates are very high, so you wanna be very careful. What you typically will do is you pre-medicate the patient, but also you switch contrast agents. So if you gave Omni, give Visi. If you gave Visi, give Omni. You wanna switch contrast agents. That works very, very nicely. And again, it's very, very important. Now the question also comes, what about giving IV contrast material uh, for studies? Do you really need to do that? Can patients do without IV contrast? That's often a good question. My answer is most patients need contrast. But let's do this. Let's stop right here and we'll come back and we'll do part three and finish off our latest and greatest ideas about CT protocols. See you in a bit. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website, ctisus.com, for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.